Psalm 136. Um, I w- you've repeated over and over again, right? For his loving kindness endures forever. It's uh, two choirs that are basically one singing one part and the other one is responding uh, because we truly cannot sing enough of God's hesed, his loving kindness, his loyal, abiding, covenant love. And that's what the children of Israel were doing in that Psalm 136. And so it wasn't just to be redundant. Uh, It was to remind us, for us to respond uh, in uh, that phrase, his hesed is, it endures forever. It is lasting. It is a love like no other. And we celebrate that. We, we sing of it. Uh, we remind each other of it, don't we? Uh, because it really is a love like no other. There is no other uh, covenant, faithful, loyal love like that of our Lord. And we rejoice in that because we know we're not always faithful. <laughs> we're not always loyal, right? Um, and that's why it's a, it's a, it's a love in a, in a category all by itself as all the attributes of God are. And so we celebrate that and rejoice in that and we recognize it. Well, let's turn to 1 Peter. We're going to continue looking at this great letter to the church that is scattered. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter 1. We'll conclude the chapter in verses 22 to 25. And when you found that, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's Word, 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 22, Peter writes, these words, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your soul for a love of the brothers without hypocrisy, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. That is through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was proclaimed to you as good news. Here ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you for your covenant love, your faithful love, the standard of love. We thank you that we have been met with love, those who are undeserving, those who have fallen short, uh, not just in the past, but even this week, uh, perhaps even this morning. We have fallen short. We have tripped again in sin, and yet you are faithful to your people. You love your people, and we rejoice in that, Lord. We celebrate that. We recognize that you are our salvation, that if it would not be for your covenant love, your loyal love, we would be lost. We would be damned. And so, Lord, we recognize that. We, we thank you for that. We are humbled by 
such a faithful love that has been poured out on us. We recognize, Lord, that we are undeserving of, of such love. And yet we even see in your word that you call us as your people to mirror such love. Oh, Lord, help us as your church to hear your word. May, may it convict us. May it uh, motivate us to a greater affectionate love for your people. Lord, help us to mirror, even in the smallest way, the, the measure of love that has been poured out on, on your people. Lord, we truly are in awe of that. Give us ears to hear this morning, Lord. Give us eyes to see. May we be changed and transformed by your Spirit through the written word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. In the introduction of his book entitled The Mark of the Christian, Francis Schaeffer wrote these words, quote, Through the centuries, men have displayed many different symbols to show that they are Christians. They have worn marks in the lapels of their coats, hung chains about their necks, even had special haircuts. Of course, there is nothing wrong with any of this if one feels it is his calling. But there is a much better sign, a mark that has not been thought up just as a matter of expediency for use on some special occasion or in some specific era. It is a universal mark that is to last through all the ages of the church till Jesus comes back, end quote. And what is that mark that Francis Schaeffer is referring to? You probably could guess. It is the mark of what? Love. Love. Love is to be the mark of the church. It is the mark of the universal church throughout its, its ages until Christ returns. And Scripture, as you know, places a high premium on not only the love that is expressed by God to His people, but also the love that is to be expressed by Christians to other Christians. Peter certainly places a high premium on that. You'll notice in verse 22, the command there at the very end of verse 22 are these words. Fervently love one another from the heart. That's a command. That is an obligation. And this won't be the only time that Peter references this kind of affectionate, brotherly, reciprocal, mutual love that's to be expressed within the walls of the church. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 17, you'll notice that he says to uh, love the brethren. Love the brethren. In chapter 3, verse 8, he says, all of you be like-minded, sympathetic, and then it might say, 
brotherly, or it might say brotherly love. That's the implication. Tender-hearted and humble in spirit. And then in chapter 4, verse 8, Peter will say this, above all. So here is this premier command and obligation. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. So four times in a book that only has five chapters, four times Peter calls these exiles, these believers, to love one another. Or he calls them to brotherly affection. And we know, of course, that Peter was present in John chapter 13 through 17 when Jesus gave some of the most intimate instruction to his disciples. He would know these words that Jesus said to his disciples in John 13. These are familiar verses. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another, even as I have loved you. That you also love one another. And then listen to these words. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Jesus said that loving each other is the clearest mark to the watching world that we are actually Christians. And this is echoed throughout the New Testament repeatedly. You can't get away from it. Romans chapter 12, verse 10, Paul says, Let our love be without hypocrisy. In other words, let it be genuine. And then part of this genuine love is us being, he says, devoted to one another. Devoted to one another in brotherly love. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 14, Let all that you do be done in love. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1, Let love of the brethren continue. 1 John 3.11 For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Peter says it. Jesus says it. John says it. Paul says it. Whoever wrote Hebrews says it. Over and over and over. The message is crystal clear that love is the badge and character of biblical Christianity. Love is the badge and the very character of biblical Christianity. And by the way, that's true for not just us in the 21st century. And that's not just true of this church in Covina. This is to be true throughout every church and throughout every age. Just as Schaefer said, until Christ returns. So whether we're talking about the first uh, century Christian here in the letter of 1 Peter, who is in exile, who's not in his homeland and dispersed, that Christian is to love fervently the brethren. And that's also true for 
us who are sitting here in the 21st century in Covina, California, at a small little church, we are to fervently love one another. Love is to be the mark of every follower of Jesus Christ. And here's the wonderful thing. It should be, and I'm not saying it always is, and people bring up that it's often not, but I think, again, the call is to fervently love, and that should be true if we are here or at a church down the road or if we're in Kenya, Africa, or if we're in Dublin, Ireland, or any other part or continent or country. That should be true, and that should be true in every age. The church, according to the Scriptures, is to be marked out by love. One of my Greek professors that I truly loved his enthusiasm for teaching us, his name was Dr. Farnell. We were learning basic Greek, and if you know basic Greek, you spend most of the time in 1 John, because that's just the easiest Greek. You don't go to Luke, right? You don't go to Hebrews in basic Greek. You go to 1 John. It's just basic Koine Greek. And I remember his emphasis in particular in 1 John 2 and 3 and 4. And I can hear in my mind, even to this day, Dr. Farnell saying, very passionate, don't tell me that you love doctrine. Don't tell me you love Jesus, and yet you hate your brother. It was piercing. It's piercing then, it's piercing still. The Bible is abundantly clear that an unloving Christian is an oxymoron. It just is. Now, that doesn't mean we're not inconsistent. We are. Right? I am. We all are. We know this brotherly affection didn't just characterize or wasn't just to characterize this church. We know it actually did characterize the early church. You can read it in Acts. Paul commends the church at Thessalonica and Philippi for their deep and abiding and consistent love for one another and for Philippi, their love for Paul specifically. And so this was what you saw. This was the mark and the badge of the Christian church. And it even goes beyond the New Testament scriptures. You can go to early church writings. These are not scriptures, but for example, Aristides, second century, this is about 125, 130 AD. Listen to how he describes Christians of that age. Quote, they love one another. They never fail to help widows. They save orphans from those who hurt them. If they have something, they give freely to the man who has nothing. If they see a stranger, they take him home and are happy as though he were a real brother. They don't consider themselves brothers in the usual sense, but brothers instead through the Holy Spirit of God. So here you have, it's definitely clear they were impacted by the passages of Scripture that we've already read. Justin Martyr, somewhere around the time about 150 to 170 A.D., he sketched Christian love this way, quote, We who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else now bring what we have into a common fund 
and share it with anyone who needs it. That sounds a lot like the book of Acts. We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. Now listen to this. Now, because of Christ, we live together with such people and pray for our enemies. You see, these early Christians were impacted by the truths that we're reading in 1 Peter and other places. Tertullian, a little bit after uh, Justin Martyr, about 190 to 215 A.D., reported that the Romans would say of Christians, this is the outside world saying this, see how they love one another. Isn't that exactly what Jesus said? By this, they will know, all will know that you love one another by that. In other words, their love was observable. It was tangible. It was caring. It was affection. Affectionate. Can't help but pray and hope that that would be exactly what our church would be known for. That the church would be known for here. See how they love one another. Peter expected it from these particular exiles. These exiles who possessed no financial power, they had no cultural status, no political sway. They didn't have any of those things. And yet, if they were going to influence the watching world, it was not going to be by might or by money, but by mutual love. By mutual love. This is a... This was to be a community like no other. Peter, in essence, is saying what the Romans were saying during the days of Tertullian. See how much they love one another. So from our text this morning, I want us to note four characteristics of the love that is to be expressed by and for the church. Four characteristics. The first thing that we see, and it's an obvious one, is that this is a shared love. This is a shared love. Fervently love one another. One another. This is, by the way, the fourth command in this section. We were, in verse 13, called to hope. In verse 15, we were called to be holy. In verse 17, we were called to live honorably or reverently or live in fear. And now in verse 22, Peter gives this command, fervently love one another from the heart. Now, just as you think through those commands, you can hope all by yourself. You can hope alone, right? You can even be holy alone. You could even live fervently or reverently alone. But loving one another, well, that takes one another, right? That takes someone else. And this command reminds us that we may be, they may be, especially living the exiled life, they may be sojourners who are passing through, but they're not living isolated lives. It's a bad idea to live isolated lives, just so you know. 
It's bad to isolate yourself from the church. It, it will not produce the sanctification that the church needs, nor the sanctification that you yourself needs. And so it's never a good idea. You need to just kind of process that in your mind. It's never a good idea to avoid the assembly of the brethren. Because for one reason, we're commanded to love one another. That happens when we are together. So we are not alone. And that's a good thing. God knew we needed that. We, we're not meant to live isolated lives. We're meant to live in community. We're meant to assemble and gather together. We're meant to even, in some sense, especially for some people in the church, be a, a surrogate family. That's how we're to operate. We, we are family. We are the household of faith. And that's exactly what Peter is saying. Listen, you may feel like an outcast in terms of society, but you're not an outcast when it comes to the church. Church is home. Church is family. Embrace the church. In fact, embrace the church with all of its flaws. Believe me, there are plenty. And all of their imperfections, there are plenty, but embrace it and love it and choose to have a mutual, reciprocal love for one another. I mean, let's be, let's remind ourselves that the church is loved by God. Christ loves the church and he gave himself up for her. He's committed to the church. I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not, or Hades will not prevail against her. And so listen, if Christ loved the church, if God loves the church, who are we not to love the church? The church has been created by the gospel, the gospel that recognizes we are broken, fallen, miserable sinners in need of his merciful grace poured out on us. We need a substitute, right? We need one who will, who will bear our sin. We need one who is righteous. And that's not us. We need Christ. And that's what draws us together. That's what unites us. That we're sinners in need of God's covenant love. If it wasn't for that, none of us could stand. None of us would be here. And I would encourage you to remember that just like any family, you're going to get hurt here. <laughs> you're going to get misunderstood here. You might feel unintentionally, I hope, slighted. It's going to happen at times. It happens in real life. It happens in family. And yet you love them, right? I think about my own kids, right? My kids have done and I don't want to share their tea, but, you know, they've done stuff and shocked me. And, you know, you scratch your head and yet you can't help but love them. They're my kids. I love them. I, the first time I ever held them in my arms, there's this instantaneous love. And no matter what they do, even when they're little vipers and diapers and beyond, right, you just love them. You love them because they're yours. Well, the Bible speaks of us in terms of family terms, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers. 
And so you endure. Why? Well, because you love them. Because they're your family. Listen, one thing that we see clearly is this, that this love is not a one-way street. One another. It's shared. That means it's, it, it's a love that's meant to be reciprocated. It's not just one person who's giving out love. He's also, or she, is receiving that. That this expression of love is flowing in both directions. It takes two for a marriage to work. It takes two for a lasting friendship to endure, right? Friendships come and go, right? They do. And the same is true for the church. It, it needs to be something that we are engaged in, something that we are sharing in. And so it's really important to know that this command to love one another, as you may be thinking of someone else in the church or someone else who needs to hear this message, it's you. You need to love the church. Whether you're a CEO, a lawyer, or a housewife, an IT person, a mechanic, a salesman, a, a college student, a young person, an old person, this command is directed towards you. It's something that is to be shared among the family of God, the household of faith. And by the way, the fact that it's a command and the fact that it's a repeated command, like Peter's not just talking about it, everybody's talking about it. Right? That fact means that we have to be deliberate and intentional. It means it's very easy for us to be lazy in it. It's very easy for us to take things for granted. It's very easy for us, you know, to let things just be that can happen in a marriage. Talk to someone. You know, I was just at a wedding yesterday and everyone is just bubbling and they're just smiles and you know, talk to me in about 15 or 20 years, right? Now, that's not to say it's not going to be the same. But it's to say this. There has to be this deliberate, intentional fanning of the flames of love. That's got to happen. And that's got to happen in the church as well. It's very important that we do that. And so a very practical question for undershared love is this. How am I demonstrating love for the church? Ask yourself that. It's a valid question. It's good for application. And I would follow it up by this. Because it might be helpful to share. How am I being loved by the church? It's a valid question to think about. Because this is a mutual love. This is a reciprocated love. It's a shared love. Secondly, it's not just shared, but it is a steadfast love. It is a steadfast love. You'll notice the little adverb and the command in verse 22. So not just love one another. That, that, that command happens other places. But notice he says, fervently. Fervently love one another. Now, even in the context of Peter, this could go a couple of different ways. It could mean love passionately. Love with this Intense earnestness, right? It may be referring to the intensity of our love for each other. We're family. We're brothers and sisters. Peter does at the end of the letter, actually, gives, he gives this command in chapter 5, greet one another with a kiss of love. Now people are like, that's weird. 
And when we get to it, we'll explain what they mean. You know, they probably kissed each other on the cheeks. It was a, it was a cultural expression of love. All that means is we should, you know, give expressions of cultural love here, right? might be a little bit weird if you start kissing people on the cheeks. They'll be like, whoa, time out here. It's a little much. We don't usually do that. It's, it's kind of weird, right? But in some cultures, that's like just what you do, right? But it is to say whatever is culturally acceptable, a handshake, an arm. I'm, I love to put my arm on uh, people's shoulders, right? A hug. You know, you got the Christian side hug, you know, all those stuff. But again, it's a way to express love, right? Hey, I'm glad you're here. I care about you, right? Those are appropriate. And Peter even commands this is to be this kind of effectual, uh, familial kind of love. And so it should express itself in some way that way. But fervently can also refer to a, a constant kind. Of love, a steadfast love, almost like this forbearing kind of love. This adverb is actually a compound word that literally means to stretch out, to stretch out, to extend something to the limit. And so this is an outstretched love. It's it's love to full capacity. This is love that that gets after it, right? That stretches out. This is not lazy or half-hearted or lethargic. This is, this is a love so far-reaching that, do you remember when I read what he says, above all fervently love one another? This is in chapter 4. Because love does what? It covers a multitude of sin. It covers or hides sin. It, it's that far-reaching. It's that outstretched. Now, that's not to say that love condones or hushes up sin before God or men. Listen, Christian love is not blind to sin. It it, it doesn't rejoice in sin. But this kind of love is so interested in the genuine welfare of others that simultaneously, while finding zero delight in the sin, endeavors to forgive and cover that sin just does it's psalm 32 how blessed how blessed is the uh, is he whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is you remember the word covered covered this is a love that moves us to be quick to forgive when we've been offended this this kind of love fervent love is that stretched out love certainly fits Paul's definition of love, is his description of love in 1 Corinthians 13, which, by the way, isn't, the context isn't marriage. It's the church there. It's us. Love in the church ought to be. And he describes it, right? He does so in such a masterful way. But you remember the tail end of that description. This is a love that what? Bears all things. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never fails. That is exactly what fervently can mean. Love endures. It hopes. It believes. It doesn't give up. It doesn't give in. It's steadfast. It's abiding. It's outstretched. 
brothers and sisters, we need to see one another this way. We need to see one another this way. And we need to love in this kind of capacity. We don't, we don't want to kick people when they're down. We want to cover them. Why? Because we've been covered. Isn't that what we've experienced? In the gospel? That our sin has been covered. And let's be honest. This covering, you know, we often think of our sins, and it is true, we're not what we used to be. But we still do sin, don't we? Even as believers. And Peter will say, listen, fervently love one another, because love covers a multitude of sin. Listen, that doesn't mean, again, I'm going to say it again, it doesn't mean you don't deal with sin. It doesn't mean that there aren't natural consequences to sin. Even sin that we can't help you with, right? I mean, you commit a crime, we're going to love you, but you may go to prison, right? And there's nothing I can do about that. I can visit you, I can love you, but listen, there are, again, we can cover where, we, you know, where we're able and extend love and grace. But ours is to be a fervent, far-reaching love. It's a steadfast love. Third, it's a sincere love. It's a sincere love. This is notice from the heart. I think that's important. From the heart. This is a from the heart kind of love. He said right before this, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a love of the brothers. Notice what he says. Without hypocrisy. Without hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. In other words, there's no masks here. This is not fake. This is not a fake love. This is like not a, you know, put a smile on mask. It's a genuine love that's just in your heart because you've come to know Christ, which we'll talk about in a moment. It's just this natural, familial love. You know, I grew up in the church and I grew up in Christian school. And that, that's one of the things that I could tell changed in me when I actually became a Christian. Sometimes it's hard to know. I don't have an exact date, but when I began to see real changes in my own life, there was just this love for the church that I, that I couldn't help. And that's one of the things that provides assurance in salvation. And so this isn't, this isn't fake. You, you love them because you're family. It's genuine. It's sincere. It's a love of the brothers. It's that Philadelphia, right? Think of the city of brotherly love. The church is to be the city of brotherly love, right? It really is. The sincere care and concern and affection that you feel. So it's it's sincere. It makes sense that Peter would speak of this natural, sincere, familial love for fellow Christians because we've been born again, right? We've been born again into this new family, this new community we love. Why? Because He first loved us. The very reason our love is sincere, why it is enduring or steadfast or affectionate, is because our hearts have been purified, right? Verse 22. And because we've been born again, verse 23. 
And that really leads us to the final description of love here. It's not just a shared love or a steadfast love or a a sincere love. This is a, a love that is a supernatural love. It is a supernatural love. The reason it is sincere is because our hearts have been purified. Our hearts have been changed. We've been given a new capacity for love. Right? That's what he says. That's that little conjunction there. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a mutual or for a love of the brothers without hypocrisy. In other words, you were purified, you were converted, your hearts were regenerated to love others. That's the goal. What's the goal of our conversion? Well, there could be several things we could say, but one of them is to love each other. That is the goal or the purpose of your conversion. Now, I will grant this. There is a natural capacity to love that even the unbeliever has, right? It's just a natural. I, I, would, I would argue that's part of the image of God in them, right? It's part of being an image bearer of God. You see that in, in, in the parent-child relationship. You see that in marriage. You see that in friendships. But, but what's being spoken of here is this new capacity for love. This is probably, I would argue, what Jesus is talking about when he says to them, a new commandment I give to you. Now, the commandment he gives is to love each other. And you have to ask yourself, is this the very first time in the pages of Scripture that we ever see that we're to love each other? And no, it's not. Right? It's not the first time. We're, Leviticus tells us to love our neighbors. Jesus consolidates and, and summarizes the law by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and what? Love your neighbor as yourself. So this has been something that's been communicated before. And so what has changed? What has changed? Well, the new covenant, right? A new nature, a new heart, a purified soul that now loves. And it has this new capacity to love. This is new, a new commandment. Why? Because they have a new nature. Why? Because they have a regenerate heart. They have this new ability for this kind of hesed kind of love, this loyal love. Listen, if you've ever wondered why it's so difficult to love, at least in terms of continuous, continually, to endure in love, it's because it goes against the grain of our fallen nature. Right? It does. Why do marriages in this world end? Why do parents, fathers, mothers, why do they abandon their children? Why are there these horrible friendships that that break apart and, and potentially even one murders the other one? And you're like, what is happening? Why? It's our fallen nature. Because genuine biblical love seeks the good of others even at the expense of self. Right? Even at the expense of self. 
This is a love that is lasting, enduring, it's patient, it's humble, it's kind, it's quick to forgive, it's quick to think the best, it's quick to give as a sacrifice. That kind of love is hard to come by because of sin. Right? And we've been tripped up by it. We are tripped up by it. That old man. That's why Paul refers to it as a battle or a war. Right? Our old man that has been crucified with Christ. Yet it calls out, doesn't it? You hear it. You hear that old nature at times. Ah, come back. It was way better when I ruled. It was way better when I ruled. You had way more fun. Come back. Let me rule you again. Right? We know that as believers. Our nature as sinners is to be a lover of self, not a lover of others. It just is, right? I mean, there is this natural selfishness within all of us. And I've said it before, and there is nothing like marriage and kids to make that glaring. Right? To see it in our own hearts. Biblical love that is genuine requires death to self. The giving up of self for the good of others. Somebody sent me a little clip from a message that a preacher was preaching. And, you know, our, our age says embrace yourself. Love yourself. And the pastor said, you know, I've never seen in the scriptures where that is ever seen. It's never stated. The opposite. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. It does. It really does require a killing of self. So why is loving our spouse hard? Why is parenting hard? Why is having a lasting friendship a deep one? Not the surface one. Right? The ones that call you out. Why? Well, sin. Because to love someone means I must die to self. And that's the kind of love the Bible calls for. That's the kind of love that we are to flourish in. But to do that, we need to reverse every instinct of the old man, of the fallen man. We, We need a new Heart. We need a new nature. We need a regenerate nature, a purified nature. And that's what happens as a Christian. We have a new nature, a new capacity to love. Do we still fail? Yes, we do. Why? That's that whole battle, right? The war within. Why do you think Peter has to give the command to fervently love each other? Because Peter knows, because Peter has experienced that old man. Peter, come back. Remember how we used to live? Let me just add one further note here. Not only is this a new capacity to love, but it really is a completely different love, isn't it? It really is. The whole nature of it, the whole description of love, is is it's otherly. Just like God, right? Peter is calling us to... A not-of-this-world kind of love. A supernatural love with supernatural characteristics. And the world has really hijacked and even redefined love. 
And, and I don't just mean uh, in those syrupy and sentimental Hallmark movies, right? I'm not just talking about that. Love does involve feelings, okay, emotions. But the way that the world has hijacked love is to, to mean that this kind of love is some kind of blanket acceptance of anything and everything a person decides they want to be or, or, or are. And that, that's not love at all. When Paul describes love, and I've given you some of those in 1 Corinthians 13, don't forget that in the middle, when he's saying love is patient, it's kind, it's not jealous, it's not puffed up, it doesn't seek its own, it doesn't keep a list of all the ways that this person has caused you wrong, right? And, and smack dab in the middle between that and it bears all things, hopes all things, right in the middle and it's often overlooked, and I would argue it's most often overlooked by Christians. It is most overlooked by Christians. It says, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. It rejoices with the truth. If you think that love doesn't judge, or it doesn't correct, or discipline or reprove, you have a worldly definition of love. You've embraced the world's definition of love. You don't have a biblical one. Biblical love, and I'll give you an example of this in just a minute, that's very natural, right? Biblical love loves enough to not let another brother or sister continue on in sin. You go to them, not out of hate, but out of love. We did this, or we currently do this, with our own children, don't we? I mean, I express to you my deep and abiding love. And they don't get it. Your kids don't get it at this point. Like, there really is, like, you just have this love. And even if they did really, really horrible things, you just, you have this love for them. But, we don't let them do whatever they want, do we? We don't. We judge them in the sense of seeing behavior that is unrighteous, that's ungodly, and we provide wisdom and correction and even discipline. Why? Because we love them. We love them so fervently, so deeply, that we won't let them continue. You know, it's kind of like any parent who's experienced this. Remember those times when your kids throw an absolute temper fit, an absolute scene in Target, right, or Walmart, and it's like, you've got to be kidding me, and uh, (laughs) I remember Riley, she won't mind me telling this story, but I remember Riley, she was throwing a fit, and we just kind of reached over and just gave a little pinch, and then she goes, ow, you pinched me, (laughs) and so we're like, oh, man, but what what do we do? You lovingly correct your kid. You discipline them. You give them wisdom. You you punish them, saying, hey, you're going to go home and sit down and you're in trouble or whatever it might be. Why? It's not because you hate them. You love them. Right? And be honest, okay? Now, give a little grace here, Christians, but be honest. You are at Target. You saw a kid throw an absolute fit and the parent did nothing. What did you think? Be honest. You're like, what are you doing? Do you love the kid? Discipline them. 
right? You, I mean, we do. We, we make those kinds of judgments. And again, parents do this because they love their kid. They love them. Proverbs is full of that. Spare the rod. Hate your son. Right? It's not love. Even the Lord says this in Hebrews 12, right? His children, he disciplines, right? Because he loves them. So this new nature is actually built to love in a whole different way. It's built to love in a way that God loves us because he disciplines us. It's one of the surest evidences of our own conversion. If you've ever wondered about your salvation and your assurance, this is a great way to see it. Do you love? Do you love people? Even when they wrong you, man, you just love them anyway. Because you can't help it. 1 John 3, verse 14, we know that we've passed out of death into life. Why? Because we love the brothers. We love the brothers. The one who does not love abides in death. It's also proof we've passed from life to death. It's also proof that we know him. 1 John 4, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because, and we all know this verse, God is love. Right? Listen, shoes are made for feet, hats are made for hands, and Christians literally are made to love. They're made to love each other deeply, mutually, even supernaturally by God's amazing grace. Everyone who loves has been born of God. And that's exactly what Peter says. For you have been born again. Verse 23. This is God's doing. He has birthed you anew from above. You have a new nature. It's a new kind of love. This is the whole reason You're to love like this because it's consistent with your new life and your new nature. This is why John says you can't go around saying you love God and you know him when you hate your brothers. You've been born again. This is not natural or earthly, but a supernatural birth. Notice how he even talks about the seed. You are not born of a corruptible seed, right? But an incorruptible seed, it's exactly like our inheritance that he talks about, right? Exactly like the inheritance in verse 4. It's incorruptible. This is a different seed. That first seed, it led to our destruction. That first seed is subject to decay and death. Not this one. Not this incorruptible seed. No, this one is supernatural. This one is incorruptible. What is born of man is sure to die. What is born of God will live forever. And notice the means or the the instrument brought about by this new birth. Through, verse 23, through the living and enduring word of God. So how did this seed that has caused us to be born again come to us? Well, God ordains the ends as well as the means. What is the means? The living an enduring word. And this word has come to you, he says. And it's, you heard it proclaimed and you hear it as what? Good news. The assumption is that the word these exiles had come to believe and trust and embrace. This word has the very character of God. 
living and enduring, incorruptible. This word, this word of the Lord is never obsolete or irrelevant. It's intended for all people in all time. It's always superseded. It always supersedes human philosophy. It is enduring. It is lasting. The grass, it, it, it withers. The flower, it fades. It's transitory. It's passing. The glory of the flesh is passing, right? But not the Word. Not the Word that has brought life to us. Right? It's exactly as Solomon was saying in the in the book of Ecclesiastes, right? It's all vain. It's all meaningless, man. You, you have it and then it goes away. It's nothing lasting. It's passing. It's transitory. Not so with this Word. Not so with us who have been born again with an incorruptible seed. It's not fleeting. It's not falling away. It's living, abiding. You'll notice in your Bible that verse 24 and some of verse 25 is in all capital letters. Peter's quoting from Isaiah 40. When Isaiah spoke those words, he said to a generation of Israelites who were about to be carried off to Babylonian exile and captivity, after centuries of neglecting God's commands, and it was a time for them to endure God's chastening hand, but as much as Babylon would come in power and have authority, God assured them they would not last forever. He, he said that over and over again in, in the prophets, right? It, it, this won't be forever. I'm not casting you off forever. The grass always withers. The flowers always fade. The kingdoms and philosophies of the world, Babylon, Isaiah 40, right? Might seem strong, but they're still like grass. They're like flowers. They'll come and go. In fact, we know Babylon doesn't live very much longer, right? After Babylon comes Persia. After Persia, Greece. The Greco-Roman Empire. Even the invincible Roman Empire that Peter, Peter's audience toiled under, one that would lead to eventual persecution, that too would not last forever. But God's Word and all of God's promises about His kingdom, those endure forever. And this living and abiding Word, this unfailing Word, has not only called you to love, it's, it's caused you to love. It's caused you to love. It's the very instrument of God to bring about the new birth. This love we're called to is a supernatural. It's one wrought in us by the living God by means of His abiding Word. Romans 10, right? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. And so it's, ca- it's caused us. This is a love, therefore, that will endure all things. This is not the kind of love... Sorry. Uh, what love we're called to, one that mirrors the Word that changed us. We often think, oh, I'll love as long as you love me. Or I will love you as long as you fulfill and fill in the blank, right? That is a human love. That is, that is love that is characterized by the corruptible seed. That is not the kind of love being described in the Bible by Peter or Paul. You know, I love you 
rolls off our tongue rather easily. If your love isn't enduring, though, it, it isn't love. Not biblically. It might be like or lust or something altogether, but it's not love. Love endures. It remains. It's faithful. It's steadfast. It doesn't give up. By the way, who loves like this? We've said it over and over again. The Lord. And Peter, in essence, is saying, yeah, and you're his kids. You're his seed. So love in kind. Love each other as he has loved you. Let me just conclude with a little practical consideration because this love doesn't come naturally. We've said that. We must be intentional to fan the flames of love. We need to press on. And let me just give you a couple of things that you can do, even here. You're hearing the word, maybe you're being convicted. One, here's one that's practical, stay for lunch, right? Stick around, it's already here. Sit with other believers and ask them about their story. Ask them what the Lord is teaching them or even ask how you might pray for them. Another one you could do, join a discipleship group, right? Join one, meet with them faithfully, break bread together, share life together about the impact of the word in your life. Third thing you can do, look around. Seriously, look around for a second. Don't stare at people oddly, but just look around. Who's missing? We're small enough where we know. Who's missing? Call them. Let them know you missed them. Bring bring them a meal. Write them a note. Extend love to them. We need to cultivate love, right? And those are some things we can do. Paul told the church at Thessalonica to keep increasing all the more when it comes to love. May that be true of us. And may those outside of our church say, as the Romans said, see how much they love one another. God help that to be true in our church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, it is, a, it is a fire at times that uh, reveals the genuineness of our own hearts. Lord, where it needs to convict, I pray that it would. Where it needs to heal, I pray that it would. Where it needs to provide assurance, I pray that it would do that as well. But Lord, may we be marked by love. Help that to be true. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.